historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. In today's episode, I will deal with Israel's alleged nuclear power. I say alleged because Israel never acknowledged or denied strong rumors of it possessing weapons of mass destruction. Just a week ago, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett declared an extension to the nuclear secrets. This decision means that materials, that is documents, that should have been released for public review or historical research after 50 years will only be exposed after 90 years. Is it really necessary? Many say that Israel's nuclear secret is the most well-known secret. In other words, everyone knows Israel has nukes. Furthermore, it is thought that Israel was the sixth country in the world to produce nuclear weapons already back in the 1960s. So if everyone knows it, why is Israel so hush-hush? Israel's nuclear policy for years said the following, We will not be the first country to introduce nuclear weapons into the Middle East, but we will also not be the second. Apparently this phrase was coined in the 1960s after the then-president of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, declared that Egypt would seek nuclear weapons to counter Israel. For Israel, being ambiguous was, or still is, for three major reasons. One was to deter our enemies from waging a war of annihilation against us. Simply put, the enemies of Israel should be aware that an attempted destruction of Israel will end in their own destruction. Having said that, the second reason was that Israel did not want to push the Arab countries to acquire their own nuclear technology. Staying ambiguous would allow the Arabs and other dictators to ignore Israel's nuclear capability. Finally, the third factor is because Israel wants to avoid world pressure, avoid condemnation, and obviously avoid action by the United Nations. Here's where I should mention that Israel never signed the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. Just to remind ourselves, the treaty's objectives is to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and weapons technology. But as said previously, it is the most well-known secret that Israel allegedly has nukes. So, let's take a deeper look. When and how did Israel, once again allegedly, acquire or produce nukes? Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, strongly believed that once the Arab countries understood Israel had nuclear capabilities, they would abandon the idea of destruction and eventually this would lead to a long-term peace in the region. Ben-Gurion clearly stated that Israel cannot afford to lose even one war. According to Ben-Gurion, Israel will never be able to withstand the numerical quantity of the Arab countries, and to that end, it must hold a nuclear option for ultimate deterrence. The opportunity arose in the fall of 1956. It was then that Egyptian President Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal bringing on himself and Egypt the wrath of France and England. Now, understand, it was the French in the 1800s that actually built the Suez Canal, which would connect the Indian Ocean with the Mediterranean Sea via the Red Sea and save shipping the time of going all around Africa. At one point, the Egyptians held stock in the Suez Canal, but couldn't really afford to keep their end of the ownership, and hence they sold it to a British company. So basically, for 100 years or so, the French and the British control the Suez Canal, and they're making a pretty good amount of money from it, not to mention controlling a major intersection in the world, which provided them more power. In the mid-1950s, as mentioned before, the president of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, 
decides to nationalize Suez Canal and basically take it away from the French and the British. Now, you may realize that the French and the British were beside themselves. They wanted it back, but they really couldn't afford to take it back because it was in Egypt. So, they drew up a plot. They thought an ingenious plot, which also involved Israel. The French and the British wanted to start a war between Israel and Egypt. In that war, Israel would take over the entire Sinai Desert, all the way to the banks of the Suez Canal. At that point, the British and the French would parachute on either side of the Suez Canal, basically claiming to be a mediating, peacekeeping force. But of course, they would keep the Suez Canal on their hands, once again being on both sides of the canal. Why would Israel actually go to war with Egypt? Well, for two main reasons. One was that Egypt was blocking up the waterways to southern Israel, specifically to the Sea of Eilat on the Red Sea in the south part of Israel. The second had to do with the fact that Egypt was training and financing terrorists, mainly from the Gaza Strip, called the Fadayuns, which would strike at Israeli civilians almost on a daily basis. When the French and the British approached Israel with the idea of the plot, David Ben-Gurion, again the Israeli prime minister, a very shrewd politician, pretty much understood and played hard to get. Why should I? Why should I risk Israeli lives in fighting a war with Egypt, which you know how you start a war, you never know how it ends. Well, he knew exactly why he should. And he approached only the French, did not trust the British, saying, there is one condition that I would actually go along with this plot. And that condition was, give us uranium. And so it happened. On October 29th, 1956, around 3 p.m., the Israeli Air Force launched a series of attacks on Egyptian positions all over the Sinai and proceeded with a ground invasion. When Israeli troops got close enough to the bank of the Suez Canal, the French and the British indeed parachuted to either side of the Suez and basically kept it in their hands. At one point, the war was over. Egypt had lost. Israel, the French, and the British had won. At least they thought they won. The United States and the Soviet Union, two emerging superpowers, stepped in, saw right through the plot, and diplomatically convinced, well, that is forced, the British and the French to withdraw from the Suez Canal. And Israel was to withdraw all the way back to the original border before the confrontation began. Terms are drawn out, and in 1962, Egypt made its final payment to the Suez Canal Company and took full control of the Suez Canal. But... Ben-Gurion had achieved this goal. Israel was on its way to securing her existence. Once Israel had uranium, it needed a lot more components to establish nuclear capability. One of the issues facing a clandestine nuclear program was the ability to obtain these components. To deal with this, Israel established what's called Halishka Likishrei Mada, or in English, the Bureau of Science Relations. The Hebrew acronym is LEKIM. LECM was an intelligence body that operated within the Ministry of Defense from 1957 to 1986. Like I said, the Bureau was established to obtain sensitive technologies and technological intelligence that could not be overtly obtained. In its time of operations, the Bureau of Science Relations, again LECM, was considered the most secret intelligence body and participated in the acquisition of components from the nuclear program. Again, Everything I am telling you is only alleged, and it is based on mainly sources from outside of Israel. However, proof of Israel's nuclear capability came to light, very bright light, in 1986. A man named Mordechai Va'anunu, who worked as a technician in a nuclear facility in Dimona, had political views that radicalized towards the left, mainly during the 1982 Lebanon War. 
He got very close to Israel bashing Arab activists and became vocally critical of Israel on many different levels. When his employers learned of his extensive activities, he was fired from his job. But not before Mordechai Vanunu smuggled a camera into the nuclear facility and took pictures. Lots of pictures. Then Vanunu set out on a journey around the world that lasted more than two years. He initially traveled east, where he tried to convert to Buddhism, eventually settling in Sydney, Australia, and working there as a taxi driver. In Sydney, he approached an Anglican church and told church members about his work at the nuclear reactor. In July of 1986, he converted to Christianity and moved to one of the rooms in the church. In that same year, he was convinced to expose the photos by a journalist working for a London paper called the Sunday Times. The photos, up to 60 of them, were checked by experts and revealed that Israel had an advanced nuclear arsenal of up to 200 warheads. Five days before the story broke, Israeli security services were tipped off. It was too late to keep the story from being published, but Israel abducted Va'anunu. Yes, abducted. Now, security services always try to find out the weakness of the person that they're trying to grab. Va'anunu's weakness was women. So Israel sent an agent named Cindy, who lured him from London to Rome. This was because Israel did not incur the wrath of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, by grabbing him on British soil. Not sure why Italy was kosher to nab Vanunu, but Italy never made a fuss about it. He was brought to Israel, stood trial for treason and espionage, and convicted to 18 years in prison. The secret was out, but Israel still wouldn't confirm or deny nuclear capability. So now, an even deeper look. When would Israel actually use weapons of mass destruction? The only real scenario in which Israel would use nuclear weapons is if we are on the verge of physical destruction and in a situation where we have nothing to lose. This scenario is given the name the Samson Option. It is taken from the biblical story in which Samson knocked down pillars, killing many Philistines as he shouted, My soul shall die with the Philistines. Now, strategically, there are three cases that will prompt Israel to using weapons of mass destruction. The first is if the entire Israeli air force is annihilated. The second is if the enemies of Israel would cross the green line or Israel's narrow waist. And the third is if there is use of conventional weapons against Israel. Perhaps the closest we Israel have ever come to using weapon mass destruction was on the second day of the Yom Kippur War. That was October 7th, 1973. On that second day, the cabinet heard a distressing briefing from the chief of staff, David Elazar. The front lines were penetrated in the north and in the south. We were in trouble, existential trouble. Moshe Dayan, the minister of defense, apparently in a very gloomy state of mind, suggested that Israel demonstrates its nuclear capability. Other government ministers vehemently opposed the proposal and Prime Minister Golda Meir told Dayan, forget it. Israel ended up turning things around and won the Yom Kippur War. Luckily, no weapons of mass destruction were activated. As I stated in previous episodes, Israel today faces a potential nuclear Iran which threatens the annihilation of Israel. Hopefully Iran never achieves nuclear capability. But even if they do, they are well aware of Israel's second strike capability. Once again, according to foreign press, Israel has submarines that can carry nuclear warhead. And once again, that would be the second strike capability. Now, even though it is ambiguous, it is known that the use of Israeli nuclear weapons can be made only by the direct order of the Prime Minister, the Minister of Defense, 
the chief of staff, or all three. And that too, only after a war cabinet decision. Once again, due to ambiguity, there's no reliable information about the exact number of nuclear bombs in Israel's possession. But it is common to estimate that Israel possesses up to 600 bombs of various models. Without these weapons, Israel could not respond convincingly to existential hazards with any plausible threat of retaliation and or with any persuasive threat of counter-retaliation. We pray that we are never put to the test. If you like the Inside Israel podcast, please share with others. You can access all of our episodes on InsideIsrael.fm, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and many more. 